This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. to two minutes past nine. You're tuned to 102.7 triple R. Maybe you're listening via rrr.org.au. It's time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name's Bron Burton. And I'm Cade Mills and I'm wet and salty. <laughs> and this is my second show. <laughs> it is, but no, I went surfing yesterday, so... I'm, oh, right. Yeah, Literally, I'm pretty excited. Okay. I'm pretty refreshed. My wetsuit's still in the back of the car. It's oh, really? freezing. I just remembered oh. then, yeah. Did you but, rinse it out? Of course not. Right, no. okay. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Good to hear. I'm not going to ask the other obvious question that everybody no, no asks. No, need. The answer's no. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Hey, thank you, Tim, very much for Vital Bits. Thank you. I've missed you. Missed you, Tim. Been away the last couple of weeks. New South Wales. Hmm. And did you get wet and salty while you're up there, bro? Uh, first week, yes. Um, I was staying just south of Sydney with a couple of friends and uh, went into the water and um, was cursing that I hadn't brought my bathers because it was actually swimmable, believe it or not, at this time of the year. It was chilly but manageable. Um, Would have been okay. But, um, yeah, then last week up in Bermagui and I reckon the water was at least five degrees colder. Yeah. It was really cold. Yeah, you need to be well prepared yeah. for that one. Lots so- of rubber. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> went in up to my knees. That was as far as I could manage. Nice work. Mm. Um, today's program, we're gonna you're going to do a surf report shortly? I'm going to do it very shortly, yes. <laughs> I'm pretty excited. It was great. Excellent. Then Neil Blake's going to be joining us. Neil, our own bay keeper, he's going to be bringing us some information on some surveys that he's been doing and looking at some potential uh, benefits of alternative approaches to coastal management. I've also seen Neil's been a bit of a film star recently. Mm. I just saw this bit of a shot, so he might give us a bit of an insight as to what he was up to there as well. Neil or his alter ego? 
I have a feeling it might have been Neil, not his cousin. Okay, his yeah. cousin, sorry, yeah. not his alter ego. Well, that too, yeah. <laughs> Don't want to spoil it for the kids. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, we're going to catch up with Terry Allen for a dive report. She's also been diving yesterday. Very cold in the water. This is It's that time of the year where um, uh, you really are committed to be going underwater at this point. It's a great time of the year, though, because, one, it's generally quite clear, but also you tend to avoid the crowds. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. If you're hardcore enough, you're out there and, you know, you're with like-minded people. Indeed. Uh, and then we've got a very special guest who you've lined up from Deakin Uni. Yeah, Dr Craig Sherman, senior lecturer there, and oh, it was probably a month or so ago I started talking about environmental DNA, and I'm just someone who's interested in it, whereas Craig's someone who actually uses it as a tool. So I wanted to have a chat to him about what he's been using it for and also the future of it. I've got some ridiculous ideas that I want to run past him as well as just learn a little bit more about it. Fantastic. What is environmental DNA or eDNA? Yeah, well, you type that into Google and you end up with lots of pictures of Dame Edna because eDNA is Edna. (laughs) (laughs) So I discovered that last night doing a bit of research, which was quite a bit of fun. But, yeah, yeah, he'll talk about environmental DNA, not Dame Edna. It's funny when that happens with searching and there's – what do you do? Like there's no alternative unless you actually type in environmental DNA. That's where I got to. Which is what you have to do, yeah. yeah. And then uh, to close the show, Jeff's coming in um, with his latest instalment in his 2018 edition of uh, Soundwaves. Uh, And this week, this month, uh, it's all I know is it's a pirate movie. It's an Australian pirate movie. um, And uh, that's all I know. Looking forward to it. He's always light on the details. It's good. Keeps us in suspense. Let's do a little bit of weather. What have we got installed today? 13 will be the maximum. Uh, six degrees of the minimum, which I think we've already had. I think probably still is. Might even be a little bit cooler. Yeah, it feels like it out there. It's quite chilly. Partly cloudy. Uh, winds northerly 25 to 35 kilometres per hour. And uh, there you go. That's it. Sunny. Mostly sunny today. Tomorrow, 13, shower or two. And then it's going to continue with showers on Tuesday, 16, shower or two and windy. Then Wednesday, 15, partly cloudy. Shower or two Friday, uh, Thursday and 15. Friday, 14, partly cloudy. And Saturday, 14 degrees. We're into winter. That's what you do. We are. That's it. You just dress appropriately and it's all fine. Just like out in the surf, (laughs) which the surf report for today is you should have been there yesterday. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But no, there's still, there was quite a bit of swell around yesterday. There should still be some swell around a couple of foot. Um, Both sides of the coast should be all right, but the wind has picked up quite a bit. So places with the, most places will handle northerly. Um, I think there's a little bit of west in it. So the surf coast is probably one of the better options, but I'm sure if you know your local surf spots over the other side, you'll be able to find somewhere um, and it's going to be like that for the next couple of days but the swell's on the drop but yeah definitely get out there and have a paddle and because of this nice cool weather there's a lot less people out there it's fantastic mm. great time to surf you can always go and check out Swellnet for the latest conditions but I've just had a quick flick through what's been put in today's paper and that completely concurs with what you just said Kate oh I didn't just make it up you didn't no oh, good <laughs> <laughs> uh, the tide times if you're heading out on the water, doing something under the water, doing something on top of the water. Point Lonsdale, we are heading for a high tide at one forty-six this afternoon and then a low tide at 7.08 this evening. There you go. That's the weather report. Uh, got any news? I've got 
Oh, well, actually, the big one, which I noticed this week, was um, the, very exciting, and we're hoping to have him in studio in the next few weeks, uh, Dr Eric Fitzgerald, who's a paleontologist, who, uh, according to the news article, so this was um, in The Age on Thursday, made an exciting find in museum archives. And uh, it, it kind of goes back a little bit further than that. It's a really fascinating story with uh, a, a dinosaur bone. It's a, a, um, a pygmy whale, which they've dated back to being six million years old. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and it's from the bay is where they found it. That's like, right. It's a really old specimen that's just been sitting around gathering dust by the sounds of it. 60 years it's been sitting in a drawer. Yeah. And uh, so he's doing some work with a fellow paleontologist and um, sort of, I guess, lamenting the lack of fossil record for pygmy whales in the bay. And they sort of opened this drawer and went, oh, yeah, what about that one? And dated it back to six million years old. And I imagine Dave Donnelly from Killer Whales Australia will be quite excited about this. We've had him in talking about the, the whale, so... That's right. Yeah, it'd be interesting to get his take on it as well. So this is a, a hugely significant fossil. There's only five of them in the world of this particular type of whale uh, in that particular era. So enormously significant. And um, now, of course, evidence that they were here in Port Phillip Bay six million years ago. I think there's a lot of stuff that was in Port Phillip Bay that we're only just discovering. I only recently discovered grey nurse sharks used to be around in the bay. Right. Yeah. There's, and then again, in the fossil record as well, I was doing something completely relevant, irrelevant to that, but ended up discovering that. And wow. I have a feeling there's probably a whole lot of things. Maybe we need to start getting some paleontologists in. Well, we're and going to be doing that in a couple of weeks. Fantastic. Yeah. We can find out what's been around. That's it. And uh, Bo Morris is being... We've talked about Bo Morris before and the significance of it in terms of um, its richness of fossils and um, being under threat from potential development. And this comes up from time to time and I guess it's it's just so important that we get this stuff exposed and well known so that we can protect these areas. Oh, it's extremely important and we keep on learning more from these things all the time, even 60 years after the discovery. That's right. Yeah. Cool. All right. Coming up to 10 past nine, we're going to play a track now. This is a little, um, the music I've programmed today is a little rock dog heavy. In fact, the last show that I did was the Day of the Community Cup. That was the last show I did as well. Yeah. It took me two weeks to recover from playing in the Community Cup. <laughs> <laughs> I heard um, Paulie and Nerida, who's here with us today, talking a bit about the Community Cup. Had um, Dr. Alex in with them last night on Livewire. Great show. Um, we're still talking about it two weeks later. We didn't even win. Imagine what we'd be doing if we had won. Oh, the party would still be going. <laughs> yeah, as it will next year, Kate. That's it. As That's it will it. next year. So anyway, a couple of tracks that, which um, are from Rock Dogs, current. Um, Tim Woods plays with a great outfit called The Dirty Shoes and uh, I've been listening to this track while I've been away. It's beautiful. It was from a, an EP that was recorded last year. I think it was an EP. Um, 2017. And I hope you enjoyed this track. It's called Snorkeling. This is Wayne Lynch, and you're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR. Hey, cheers. Thank you, Wayne. And um, before those announcements, that was Tim Woods and the Dirty Shoes with Snorkeling. You can catch Tim doing a little gig tonight with the Old Married Couple in that open studio, 204 High Street, Northcote, from 8 till 11pm. What a nice gig that will be. Rockin'. Rockin', as are you, Neil Blake. Welcome. Oh, yeah, great to be here as usual, Ron. Good to have you back. 
Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, what's been going on? We were talking at the start of the show about um, some of the coastal surveys that you've been doing and the results from that. You have a very uh, beautiful colour poster in front of you. Yeah, I just thought I'd bring it in because, you know, visual things make great radio. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, you can... Uh, yes, you, you've described that it is colourful. Uh, basically, that's the outcomes of um, two shoreline shell surveys that I conducted with the students from Gordon Tafe in May of this year at Port Arlington uh, on the shoreline, which was just having an offshore breakwater installed at the time. So this is a bit of a baseline as to what the um, shoreline had to offer um, pre-construction or installation and we'll be going back to see uh, how the changes to the currents and things will influence the, um, the mollusk population in the area because, as you would uh, attest, the, the shells that are on shorelines are an indication of what's actually living offshore in the, uh, nearby. Mm. So the idea with the offshore break walls that they're putting in is like a wave attenuation? Is it to sort of help stabilise the shoreline and stop it from eroding? Is that what they're trying yeah, well, to do? that's right. Uh, at the shoreline there at uh, Ramblers Road Beach, it's, uh, it's running more or less uh, east-west, I suppose, oriented. So uh, it'd be particularly attacked by northerly winds. But uh, there is erosion, though, and westerlies, though, will have an effect, and there has been sand moving from west to east, uh, for quite a number of years, about 15 or more years. And uh, so the, the offshore wall is hopefully going to uh, allow some of that sand to settle and rather than just being moved on by the winds. So. so this is a different approach to traditionally they've often put groins in, which we have quite a few around the yeah. bay. So this is another way of trying to basically you know, maintain some sand at this side. And I'm guessing if you're going to drop down sort of the wave or the physical force and the wave atten- the waves hitting the shore there. Mm-hmm. Uh, with these shells, I'm guessing there might be a change in what you're going to find washed up on the beach as a result. Is that what you're predicting, Neil? Or? That's, yeah, that's what we're hoping to see. Well, uh, and I'm happy to see whatever emerges, but uh, you know, uh, that's what I would expect is that uh, at the moment there's uh, some thin sort of... Um, areas of sand on on an overlying uh, a pretty muddy sort of gunky sort of a substrate so a lot of the mollusks can't actually um, penetrate into that substrate so it's only the sandy areas and particularly the catalyzers in that uh, like to burrow into into the sand uh, they'll have a, a greater area of habitat to to be able to um, colonize and is that something the locals are interested in? Have you well, sort of I'm spoken hoping. to many people when you're down there doing the work? Are they uh, curious about what's going on? They are curious. I mean, they've got a big interest in it because um, there's quite a number of um, properties, houses, that are located only 50 metres from the beach and, you know, relatively low-lying area. So the future of that shoreline is very much in their interest. Uh, so uh, they... I think originally would have liked to have seen a big wall uh, to stop the waters from encroaching further, but uh, there, there are obvious issues and costs associated with that sort of stuff. So this is another attempt to um, uh, address the issue. Have you had some interest from the community in what you're doing? Uh, from, yes. From an engagement point? Yeah, well, there are, it's a little bit out of the way in terms of um, at, at the end of a point, Richards Road, So, but, it's, but the local community uh, are interested, but they haven't actually participated as yet. And so what I'm going to do is uh, put the word out that they'll be back to do another shoreline shell survey at, at 10 o'clock on 
Sunday the 29th of uh, July mm-hmm. and hopefully get a few locals come along and, and uh, get involved. So this is in Port Arlington? Port Arlington. But you don't need to be from Port Arlington if you want to take part? No, no. I, I suppose there'd be visa uh, things like that if you wanted to come from <laughs> Tasmania or something. But, but, or, you know, you, you could, could get the ferry from Melbourne. Or, <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It's an interesting area, though. There's a little mini railway track down there, too, which I haven't actually seen it operating yet, but it looks fascinating. What, what I've seen um, and heard, and our, our very own Cathy Jack, who is a permanent member of the Radio Marinara family mm. and who used to panel for us, um, lives down that way now. And um, just catching up with her, hearing about the active local community. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. very, very active in just understanding and, and protecting the coastline in particular. Yeah, so uh, we've been talking with um, Ballerine Bayside and others down there to get them, um, uh, you know, put the word out and get a few people along. Excellent. What's been happening on the other side of the bay? Well, uh, we've been doing uh, some work down at um, uh, I say, Sorry, I should say the other sides of the bay. <laughs> yeah, 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 there's a few sides to it, <laughs> yeah, aren't there? Right. So, uh, well, uh, we, the river trawls, that's something worth uh, bringing up because... Yep. Um, uh, these, this is when you're a movie star? Yeah, well, yeah. I think it's only brief. A little bit, I think I might have got a seven-second grab or something <laughs> to put in there, but uh, we would... The, um, Sustainability Commissioner is uh, producing a film on the Yarra and uh, so our monthly river trawl, uh, which was conducted with the Yarra Riverkeeper, uh, we've been doing that since January 2015 now and uh, um, they... The Sustainability Commissioner organised somebody to come out and film what we were doing to to add that into a a nice little film that's being made about the Yarra, which is great. Uh, and and by the way, the Minister D'Ambrosio is going to be launching, giving a media launch for our uh, trawls, uh, our river microplastics report this Tuesday. Ah, so, excellent. So, yeah, Can I just ask a clarification? When you say trawls, you're not trawling for fish or you're not dredging the bottom in any way. You're just yeah. looking for plastics. And how do you go about doing it? It's well, straightforward. It, yeah, it's uh, well, it's called a mantinet, which is a, just a relatively small mouthed. Uh, it's only captures the top 20 centimetres of this and, and it's only 60. So it sits at the surface? Yeah, 600 uh, centimetres across. So it's, only, it's quite narrow, less than... Less, 600 just, centimetres. Six metres. Six metres across at the top. No, hang on. No. 60 centimetres? It's, it's 600 millimetres. We'll gotcha. That. Yeah, 60s. Yeah, Nerida was doing the measurements for us. Good work. Yeah, yeah so it's a relatively uh, uh, narrow net, but uh, yeah. it's and we trawl for half an hour heading upstream. So, and but the key point about it is it's uh, got a third of a millimetre mesh size, so the, the um, very fine microplastics will be captured by. Yeah, it's going to pick up everything. And then, what do you? How do you sort all of that? Because the the size difference in what you're capturing must be enormous. It is. Well, most of the things are relatively small. I mean, you do get your odd sort of um, chip packet or something like that, but mm. and maybe lollipop stick or something. But uh, it's but we only sort by eye uh, rather than with microscopes. I mm. mean, there probably would be other microfibers and things that we'd be capturing anyway. But uh, with these long-term studies, you know, if you were going to do it down to that level, it's going to be much more costly to do. Mm. And so uh, just to be able to get... A, a con- an indication of the sort of um, magnitude of the issue about plastics in, in the rivers that then the naked eye, if you do it over a long term, is good enough. Mm. 
So, and we've estimated to be 828 million items coming out of the two rivers each year. 828 million. 74% of which are microplastics. Wow. Wow. That presents such a massive challenge, doesn't it? It's part of the broader challenge of stormwater management, but just it adds just a whole other dimension to it. That's right. And it highlights where we really need to address the issue on the streets. It's too late once it gets into the waterways. Mm. And so uh, there needs to be an investment in uh, behaviour change as well as infrastructure and, uh, you know, other measures to stop the plastics getting into the so system. This, so this video that you mentioned, is this the one that Cade was referring to, with you being a bit of a star? Well, I, I was just explaining... Because you're, you're a star, you know that, don't you? He was already a star. The video was, uh, was a bigger uh, topic of the Yarra generally. Right. We had quite a bit of history in it, so we got to see a draft of it. It looked fantastic, mm. really good stuff on the river, and particularly with the new Yarra River Protection Act being introduced too. That's the other key feature of it. Mm. But uh, I'm pleased though that we have actually got microplastics in the, in the rivers and, and the bay on the agenda now. They they just simply weren't really on the agenda three or four years ago. Now um, we are going to need to move on in a sec. Any quick plugs for what's coming up? Because the next time we'll see you may be Radiothon, I think. Uh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So that's the main one. So. Uh, so what's coming up in the meantime? You mentioned the um, the twenty ninth, was it? At, yes. That was ten am down at, at Port Arlington. Port Arlington. Yeah. Yep. So uh, I'm going to be doing some um, uh, beach profiling in Middle Park on on the twenty uh, fourth. That's Tuesday at ten thirty am, and we'll be meeting at uh, Kerford Road Pier. So if anyone's interested in coming along to that, that would be great. Uh, so the beach profiling is something that we've been doing for a few years now and to measure uh, and record sand surface levels in transects across various beaches. It's a really good way to sort of track erosion or whether or not there's actually sand that's accumulating. Fantastic. Thanks, Neil. Thank you. And we look forward to seeing you for our first Radiothon show. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. And uh, it's always a pleasure to have you in and maybe you might bring your cousin with you. Well, yeah, he seems to go missing whenever I turn up, but I can't figure it out. (laughs) Like Superman. Maybe we'll just invite his cousin in. (laughs) I'll I'll put put the word out to his people. I'm sure we've got room for both of you. Okay, great. Awesome. We'll catch you then. Neil Blake, our very own bakekeeper. Estamos escuchando Radio Marinara en Tres Triple R. Tres Triple R, that is where you are indeed. It is 28 past nine now and we're now, without further ado, crossing to our dive reporter, Terry Allen, for a dive report for this week. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Bron. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. Nice and sunny outside. Yes. Now you've come from uh, you've come from diving in the tropics to back diving in the bay, which I'm always just I'm astounded at how you can do it. It's called a dry suit, Bron. <laughs> <laughs> so I still come from the era where dry suits were kind of you know they were the luxury item, and we all just sort of coped in seven mil. But dry suits are yeah. kind of that's just what you do now, isn't it? Yeah. Look, there were a few people... Um, yes, yeah, so I went out on Lonsdale Wall yesterday. Um, great dive. Uh, and there were a few brave souls in their wetsuits. Or they, uh, all, everyone wears... Most of them wear semi-dries now, which is a bit like being semi-pregnant because you are wet. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> a good-fitting semi-dry uh, with a few extra layers is not too bad. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, it was, it was good. We... Uh, 
We had nice calm conditions and um, uh, the water temperature was 11 degrees, which is pretty cold already for July. So I reckon we're going to hit nine by August, September, sorry to say. Wow. <laughs> um, but yeah, really good. We had a draft, draft sports shark and a whole group of Port Jackson sharks under a ledge that were guarding a very large uh, crayfish. And um, beautiful sponge life, gorgeous bryozoans, lots of little tiny, um, I think they're lion's mane jellies floating through the water as we're doing our safety stop. So, yeah, considering the rain and the rough weather we've had, it's actually, the conditions are pretty good, actually. The viz was down a bit, but, um, yeah, it was still gorgeous. You're going to get that after rain anyway. I saw, um, I've been seeing some amazing images coming through via uh, Facebook and a couple of days ago I had a bit of a chuckle. Um, someone put up a picture of Ripe here and said, don't come to Ripe here, the conditions are terrible. And it was like glass on the water. <laughs> 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 Trying to tell people just to stay away, I think, maybe. I don't know. I mean, the spider crabs, you know, they kind of, after they've gone, it, the place, the Rye and Blair both look a bit like a ghost town. <laughs> There's kind of all the dead shells and there's a few. But look, they're still... I mean, in fact, it was interesting that somebody on Thursday night did a night dive there and they saw a lot of nudibranchs, like heaps. And we thought, well, they've all cleared out of Blair Gowrie because of the crabs and they're all moved town, moved across to Rye. So who knows? I think they're all still there. They just probably go into you know hibernation a bit for winter. Yeah, I think they probably... Hey, Terry, it's Kate. How are you doing? Hey, good, thanks. I imagine the nudie ranks struggle with all that foot traffic sort of trampling along them. It's probably like being a 16-year-old in a mosh pit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't remember back that far. <laughs> now, but, yeah, I mean, you know, as you know, the, the nudies, especially boy Gary, they just crawl out on the sand. It's just so bizarre, so amazing. But, yeah, so they seriously probably would have got on a bit. Sorry, Nerida's uh, got a question yeah. that I'll relay for you. I know. She no, was, no she's on air. She, she wants to know. And I'm really curious about this too. Do spider crabs eat nudibranchs? Oh. oh, no. I ooh, I don't know, actually. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, not that many things eat nudibranchs because they tend to have um, uh, toxins in their body and that's why they're brightly coloured and so you know, don't eat me, don't eat me. So there, I think there's a limited number of predators on nudibranchs. Yeah, might, there might is. Have. I'm just curious because a lot of people have suggested that, but I've never seen evidence of it. So you're in the water a lot more than most people. So if anyone had seen yeah. it, I'm guessing it would have been you. No, I, I've, I've never seen that. I mean, and as you know, like when the spider crabs come to molt, they kind of tend to just, you know, do their thing. And I, I have seen spider crabs, sort of nibbling at uh, old like shells of other crabs and you know they tend to I guess a lot of crabs tend to eat detritus don't they um, yeah so um, yeah the only thing the only time I've seen a nudibranch being eaten is by another um, carnivorous nudibranch I have to say you know in other places oh wow have you got photos of that <laughs> Uh, if you go to the Paul Nights in New Zealand, you'll definitely see that. Oh, I'm going to have to go then. Thanks, Terry. You've <laughs> sent me. <laughs> I think maybe an OB from the Paul Nights. That's not a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I think that's a definite. <laughs> <laughs> we could look at something like that. Hey, Terry, we're going to move on. I'm just having a look at my um, my program schedule for what's coming up in the next few weeks. So you're off to South Africa, is that right? That's correct. I'm going to look at... Um, Big furry things with teeth on the land yeah. and oh. big not so furry things with teeth in the water. Oh, excellent. So this is the yeah. cage dive with the great whites? 
it, it will be a cage side with Great Whites down south at Cape Town, but we are doing up further north um, to see the what they call raggy tooth, which are our grey nurse and other, hopefully, lots of other types of sharks as well. Fantastic. Can you send us lots of photos, please, and we'll put them on, on our uh, Radio Marinara Facebook page. We'd love to see them. Yeah, I will. And I think the next time I'll see you guys will be for the radio on in uh, August. That's right. Um, along with Neil, who's with us today as well. So that's fantastic. We'll really look forward to seeing you then, Terry. Stay safe. That's and, all right. No worries. And um, thanks. And uh, we'll catch you in a few weeks' time for Radiothon. Okay. Catch okay. You then. Bye. See you then. Bye. Terry Allen, our dive reporter. Jealous. Yeah, Just me too. Yeah. Me too. All right, 9.34, this is Radio Marinara, and uh, I mentioned today's uh, music program. programming had a little bit of a rock dog theme running through it, which it does. Um, this one is, uh, it, I've, while I've been away, Kate, I've been reading Tim Rogers' book, Detours, which... Which I recently finished. Yeah, we've talk, we were talking about it in the green room before. Yeah, it's a cracker of a read. It is absolutely... Tells you everything, doesn't it? It is. Yeah. It, it's just it's just so beautifully written, and I've just loved it. I'm not quite to the end of it. I'm only a couple of chapters away. Anyway, uh, I've been um, because of that. I don't know if you do this when you read um, autobiographies by great musicians. Is kind of you know reacquaint yourself with their music. Yeah, yeah and yeah. there's there's plenty to be reacquainted with too, and it throws you back to some good memories of seeing them live. That's yeah. right. So this is this is probably my favourite UMI song. Um, it's from Dress Me Slowly. Uh, it's called Gone, Gone, Gone. UMI and Gone, uh, Gone, Gone. I do love that particular track from Dress Me Slowly. It's uh, 22 I have to add up. My maths is failing me today. 22 minutes to 10. You're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3 R. And we're going to be joined by Craig Sherman, who's a senior lecturer at Deakin University. He's a publisher of many, many papers. And I had a look at what his interests were, and it had evolutionary biology and ecology of natural populations. Now, I'm curious, Craig, did you grow up thinking that that would be something you're interested in? And how did you get to that stage? Good morning, Kate. Good morning. How are you going? Yeah, great, um, mate. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I didn't really think this would be a job that I'd be doing when I was um, younger. I grew up in South Africa and always had a love for science, biology and environment. Um, but it, and I was very fortunate to travel around to, to many places in Southern Africa, um, Botswana, Namibia, Zimbabwe, um, Mozambique, everything like that. But it wasn't uh, until I actually did a scuba diving course when I was out in the, in the UK in my late teens that I discovered this whole new world underneath the oceans of plants and animals and wonderful marine life and decided that I'd find out more about it, sort of thing. So um, I then went and did a degree in marine biology at the University of Wales in Bangor and felt more in love with the marine environment and the, the organisms and understanding the biology and ecology. And um, from that point on, I knew that I had to work in this area. So I went on and did a PhD, uh, came out here to Australia and did a PhD working on corals, looking at their reproductive biology and evolutionary history uh, up on the Great Barrier Reef. So, um, yeah, it wasn't something that I initially thought that uh, I'd um, be working in, but it's a fantastic job and uh, an area that I love doing and working in. 
Craig, I've been going, I've been sort of drawing this little map uh, in my brain about you going from South Africa to Wales to Bangor and then from there to the Great Barrier Reef. That's an, that's amazing. You've just studied marine um, ecology, biology in so many different places. I wanted to particularly ask, I know we're going to talk about eDNA, but I wanted to talk about um, Bangor in particular. I went there probably about 20 years ago and I've still got a photo of me pointing to a, um, a Welsh limpet because at the time I was doing my own PhD with limpets here in Melbourne and, um, you know, as it is with so much ecology around the world, the uh, temperate marine ecology has so many similarities. Can, can you talk us through a little bit what it was like to study marine ecology in Wales? Oh, yeah. I mean, like you said, there's so, so many similarities and the, 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 the communities and ecology that you see on the temperate shores in, in North Wales are very similar to the, the, the ecology and the types of organisms that you see down here. Um, North Wales has uh, an amazing amount of marine life and um, temperate marine life, um, large amounts of sponge gardens and um, key uh, keystone predators such as uh, sea stars and uh, a whole range of other marine invertebrates. But the rocky shores are actually very familiar. So if you go down to the rocky shores, you'll see very similar organisms that you see down there at Byron Heads or any of the rocky marine intertidal zones, range of limpets, limpets other gastropod snails, dog whelks, sea anemones, uh, a whole range and uh, very similar types of environments. Fantastic. I could spend the next 10 minutes talking about Welsh limpets, but I'd better not. Kate? I was just going to say, Bron's got this look in her eyes of sort of reminiscing and back in the day. Uh, we might have to get you in just to have a conversation with Bron about that. But just moving on to environmental DNA, it's um, just something I've started reading up a little bit more of, but I know it's something that you've been using for a little while. And I guess when everyone thinks of DNA, it, you know, it's crime shows and the rest of it. How does... How do you detect DNA in the water? Um, how long does it last in the water? Does it vary for different species? Um, I've just thrown way too many questions at you to begin with, but just just a simple sort of, I guess, a bit of background on environmental DNA and what it is. Yeah, so it's a, like I said, it's a fairly um, new area. I mean, it's been around for, for, for some quite time. I guess it has its history back in microbiology in terms of people looking at the microbiomes in uh, the environment, taking soil samples and water samples and extracting the DNA to look at uh, the microbes uh, in those environmental samples. But then um, realising that there's also DNA from a whole range of other organisms actually present there. And this is because all organisms, plants and animals, shed their cells into the environment. So they're constantly losing these cells. And those cells have DNA. And so they're in minute amounts of, um, in terms of the concentration of DNA. But then there's a representative sample in the environment of all the organisms that live in that area. And we can extract that DNA. It doesn't last very long. It usually lasts from several hours to a few days. Uh, and it's uh, con- continuously broken down. So it needs to be continuously, if you like, resupplied to have a signature of the organisms in that environment. But we can take a, 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 a relatively small volume of water, uh, half a litre to a few litres, and we um, filter that through some really small filters, and it captures all the cellular debris onto those filters. We then extract the DNA out of those filters, and uh, there's a number of different approaches depending on what type of questions you're trying to ask. You can either have a very easy, specific approach where you uh, target um, DNA from a particular species and you have to be have some information about the, the DNA of that species. Or you could do a more community-wide approach where you try and, uh, and target um, you know, 
the fish community or the gastropod community or bivalve community and you, you get a, a measure of um, a number of different types of taxonomic groups within your sample. And so in Victoria, I know you've been doing some work with introduced species. Um, yeah. How, what, what have you been finding, I guess? So we've been uh, using the kind of eDNA approach to uh, look at um, range and expansion and the establishment of new uh, populations of the Northern Pacific sea star. So this is some work that I've been doing in collaboration with uh, Parks Victoria and Digita, uh, colleagues at Deakin, um, Adam Miller, Dan Warnable, and colleagues at RMIT, Dr Nathan Bott. And uh, we've been going out and uh, trying to understand how this species is expanding its geographical range and whether there's new populations that are establishing along the coast. And because these populations start to occur at very low densities, they're very hard to detect. And so the eDNA approach allows us to go to particular areas where we think there may be um, populations establishing, take our water sample, and see if we can actually detect the presence of invasive species in that area. And so you've been successful in doing that. Have you found um, Northern Pacific sea star in areas where we didn't expect it to be or we didn't think it was? So we've been doing some work with Parks Victoria down in Tidal River where they've known that the, the, the sea star has um, been in the past. It's turned up in Tidal River. They've done an eradication program and it turned up again, unfortunately, at the end of last year. Some more individuals were found. And that led uh, people to suspect that there might be a more local population that might, might be feeding into that area. Uh, and so we've done some sampling in that local area. Uh, we have had some positive detections, but those positive detections now need to be followed up with uh, more um, detailed in-water surveys to 100% confirm the presence of established populations within that wider area. So we've got some indication from the eDNA, and eDNA is a very powerful and useful tool, but it's um, just one of many tools that need to be used when looking at invasive species and um, and, and using to detect and identify the presence of invasive species. The potential for this is massive, Craig. I'm just thinking this is this is almost like a like a first step triage process in identifying introduced um, potentially introduced pest species anywhere in the aquatic environment. Is it something that you can just see as being a whole area that can just develop? I mean, the sky's the limit, really, isn't it? Absolutely. No, it's a very powerful tool. And it really saves, um, you know, the, the very costly need to put divers into the water to do these visual surveys. Uh, it's also very sensitive. We're talking about minute amounts of DNA. And so, yeah, there's a lot of uh, work going into now setting up the protocols that we need um, to, to have in place to detect invasive species. Because there are limitations to the technology, just because we get a no result or a negative result we need to know the probability that, that that's a true negative and not a false negative. Um, so we need to understand our detection limits. We also need to make sure that um, the probes that we use or the, the bits of the DNA that we target are very specific to the species so we don't get a false positive. So we're not detecting a native species and we're mistaking it for an invasive species. Um, but it certainly is a very powerful approach and really opens up a whole range of options in terms of um, increased surveillance of our coastlines and our ports and harbours for invasive species, which can have a huge economic uh, and cost to them and environmental cost to them. Okay, now I've got to wrap this up, but I've got one quick sort of stupid question because I wanted to get it in. Um, one of the limitations I take it is how quickly can you get a sample turnover and how quickly is that moving in genetics? Like will there be a day where you can go down and collect your water sample and pretty much analyse it 
standing on the shore because uh, my in- sorry my stupid idea is whether like shark detection and things like that is there you know this is casting into the future but is 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 i guess like gene research and that sort of moving so quickly where you can get these kits and be able to do stuff standing on a shoreline or are we still a bit limited to having to get stuff back to the lab uh, currently, we're still um, fairly limited um, to having samples processed back in the lab, but there's certainly um, uh, research being done to develop tools that allow us to do this in real time in the field. Uh, and so um, there's a range of new um, techniques and um, products uh, that are coming uh, out that people are adapting um, to be able to take this technology to the field, simplifying it down so anyone can go take a water sample and put it through the system and, and check it. We're not quite there, but, but we, we're certainly heading that, that way. And in terms of the, the, the shark, we're, I'm actually involved in the project with um, that's been led by Adam Miller down at Warrnambool, Dr. Adam, Adam Miller, um, looking at um, shark detection using eDNA. So that's a, a new project, so we're already working in that space, um, but um, it's certainly not... Uh, at a stage where we can go out into the field and do it in real time. Fantastic. So it wasn't such a silly question after all. Look, I have a feeling we could keep on talking to you for a long, long time, Craig. So thank you for your time this morning and we'll hopefully get you back and get updated on everything else that's going on in the future. Sounds great. Thanks very much for having me on. Great. Thanks, Craig. We'll definitely catch up with you in the near future. Okay. Bye for now. Bye. Bye. Craig Sherman there from Deakin University. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Kate and I looking at each other going, we could just keep talking on this for hours. But we've got Jeff Maynard who's coming in shortly. Hi, this is Tim Whitten. If you want to know what's going on in the ocean, tune into Radio Marinara on 102.7 3RRR. You know where it is. Good morning, Prom. How are you? I'm pretty good. Good. Um, I've kept it. I've kept it light on the details in terms of what you're doing. Oh, okay. Well, look, it is probably a bit disappointing today. It's a change of pace because normally you talk for 50 minutes about you know degradation of plankton rates in the Tasman Sea and all that sort of <laughs> stuff, and I try and come on with sound waves and lighten things up with a bit of humour, but not today, Brian. Oh. Not today. No. Oh. Uh, I'm continuing my series of Australian TV shows. Yes. That, uh, today's sound waves going to be very academic. In fact, I'd say if anyone's out there looking for some sort of subject for a thesis, want to put doctor in front of the name listen up guys because i've got one for you and it combines uh literature with uh maritimey stuff um and i'm going to talk about pirate talk and the origins of pirate talk and where it all started off uh so just let's get underway let's have a listen to the first track and this is long john silver from a 1934 movie what are you gonna do after this voyage oh i'll go back to that little roof i reckon would you like to come and live with me? With you, maybe? Yes. You see, I'll have a lot more money if... Well, I mean, there's only mother and me. Oh, no. No, matey, I, I... I couldn't. Anyhow, you can come and visit us. We'll always be mates, won't we? Certain we will. Certain we will. No, matey. Never spit to Windard. It'll live back on you. Always spit to the Lord. It sails like a gull. 
<laughs> oh, that's Long John Silver talking to young Jim Hawkins in uh, 1934. Walter Beery was the actor and a uh, quite articulate gentleman. And uh, Sails a, like a girl? G- gull. Oh, gull. gull. He's t- he's t- oh. They're up on the deck and yeah. he's teaching the boy yeah. to spit. Yeah. So when, yeah, when you yeah, make a pact to be buddies forever, yeah. you spit. So he's telling the boy don't spit into the yeah. windward, you spit to leave. Leeward, leeward. yeah. Um, gull. That's for people out there. Um, anyway, let's come forward. And, and quite an articulate gentleman. Let's come forward 80 years and have a listen to Captain Barbosa from one of the many, too many um, Pirates of the Caribbean thingies. I think. In a minute. In a minute. In a minute. Um. The memory of my father will not be defiled by the tongue of a pirate. This diary is my birthright. Left to me on the steps of a children's home. Along with a name and nothing else. Oh, so you're an orphan. What be you called? Brightest star in the north gave me my name. That would be Karina. Karina Smith. So you do know your stars? I'm a captain. I know which stars to follow home. Now, in 80 years, you'll notice, anyone paying any attention will have noticed that there's a lot of things happened there. We're, we're ending sentences in prepositions. We're splitting infinitives. <laughs> uh, uh, you has has become... Yeah, you has become ye. Ye. Uh, all, all this sort of stuff. And... and um, also, we're sort of closing one eye and speaking out the side of our mouth. And the gentleman we have to thank for that sort of wonderful evolution of pirate talk was a wonderful English actor called Robert Newton, who was a drunk and all sorts of good things, but uh, a very talented ex-Shakespearean actor. And uh, we're going to have a little listen to Robert Newton now from an Australian... You've got to try and guess the series. The Australian TV series made in 1954, which was actually two years before we had TV, but it was made in (laughs) Sydney in 1954. And uh, uh, Robert Newton is playing Long John Silver and they've just brought a dying pirate into the cask and anchor inn and they drop him on the table. Let's have a listen to Long John. Uh, Leave him on the table. Lively now. Long John, I bring important word to you. Uh, give him a drop of rum to warm his belly as he passes over. Now serve up your piece. We were sailing here to Portobello aboard the good ship Hope of Bristol when we were taken by Mendoza. El Toro, eh? I killed every able man jack aboard. Uh, throw him out on the cobbles to die. Aboard were a lad named Jim Hawkins. Jim Hawkins? Him that was shipmate with me at Treasure Island? So that's real pirate talk. Yeah. You know, that, that, that's good pirate talk as it should be. Um, so the question, of course, is how did that end up in an Australian um, TV series in the 1950s? And basically, Robert Newton played... Uh, Long John Silver in the 1950 Disney movie uh, Treasure Island. Treasure Island, yeah. And he did such a great job of it and he was so wonderful that they wanted to make a sequel. So they said return... They called it Return to Treasure Island and they shot it in Sydney in 1953. We had Pagewood Studios were cranking out lots of sort of big English movies and things like that. So they made Return to Treasure Island in Sydney in 1953. And Robert Newton was known to drink a bit and was on his fourth marriage and dodging tax debts in England and all that. And so he was here in Sydney. That's very pirate. Very pirate. (laughs) Very pirate. pirate. Uh, He was here in Sydney and, um, you know, like I say, not really wanting to go back to to the UK. So they said, while we've got here, why don't we make a TV series? And so they made a TV series called The Adventures of Long John Silver. And I think there was 20-something episodes and... um, 
They had a little Jim Hawkins, and most of them were set in this cask and anchor. They all just sit around, and <laughs> someone had come in and show a bit of Spanish doubloon or something like that, and they'd, oh, let's go and get it and all that. But it was all based on um, on good old Robert Newton sitting around the pub drinking tankards ta- 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 of rum. Yeah, uh, tankards ta- of rum in, in Sydney and, and, and little Jim Hawkins, and, and there was a love interest called Purity Somebody who ran the tavern, and she was always trying to marry Long John, and occasionally he'd get up and stomp around on one leg and then sit down, and some other pirate had come in and... You know, they'd sort of go ah, uh, and all that sort of stuff for 30 minutes, and it was really a great series. Uh, so, wrapping up, let's have a listen to Robert Newton. I forget what he's doing now, but he's, he's, he's I think the guy that they put on the table died or something, and Robert Newton saying, you know, goodbye to him. I, for one, say this is time to cut and rip. Ah, whales, bile, that's what you be. How would you pass Mendoza at Broken Finger Point? What be your plan for silencing his guns? And what's your scheme, knothead? And you wish to be captain? Then by thunder take over, for I'm stepping down. <laughs> there be your man. He died after about a year after the thing died of a heart attack or something, and, um, and that was into Robert Newton. But we have to thank him for Pirate Talk. And I think it's a serious study for somebody to pick up at some point. That's about my time. I, I agree. This needs to be picked up somewhere. It does. Yeah. Because it combines maritime stuff and literature, as I said. You and, know. and culture. And culture. Australian television. Australian television culture. So if you're out there looking to for a thesis, there you go. We'll get you in as a, as a, um, a guest at some point. Yeah, yeah an advisor. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Jeff. You're welcome. So next time we'll see you will be for Radiothon as well. Uh, yes, 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 yes. So yes. we're going to have a lot of fun with that, yes, we as will. we always do. We sure will. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thanks also to Neil Blake. Thanks to Terry for Dive Report. And uh, thanks to our guest, Craig Sherman, today. Thank you, Cade. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nerida. She's been our panel beater today. Extraordinaire. And uh, thank you, Kent, who's been taking calls and uh, keeping things afloat in the green room. And he will have this show up as a podcast in the next couple of hours. Next week, Dr Beach is coming in and we're going to be spending the whole show crossing live to Summers for their annual Share the Love uh, program where they bring together marine coastal volunteers from all over the state to congregate and share their their stories and their experiences and and suggestions on things that can be done. So great uh, excitement for next week. Share the love. In the meantime, stay tuned for Radiotherapy. Dr Doolittle is out there. He's going to be in with his army of doctors, followed by Dr Shane at 11. Have a great Sunday, and we'll catch you next week. Bye for now. Radio Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R Sponsors. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.